0: at and Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news. Conducted by at and Data Security Analysts. Complete
1: video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. John, I heard you had some interesting news coming out of California.
0: Uh, yeah, so this is an interesting story because we talk a lot about um, IoT devices, Internet of Things devices, and weak passwords. It's a topic of the show a lot. Over the past, I would say, three or four years now, we've been talking about a lot of these devices out there that have uh, default passwords, and that's usually the primary reason that they get compromised so easily. Well California actually just passed Senate Bill number 327. It's basically some legislation to try to enforce better security practices on connected devices like IoT type devices. Uh, notably, they call out that they shall not use default passwords anymore, which really is one of the largest problems with these devices. A lot of these vendors, they're going to have to do business uh, across the United States. And you know, if they want to work in California, they're probably going to you know, set the bar at the California level for the rest of the United States as well. So I think there's going to be some carryover effect um, uh, for everybody that's going to benefit from this. So in that respect, I'm kind of encouraged. There's a couple of things, you know, there's still a large embedded base of devices out there that have been out there for a long time and people might not ever replace. So it doesn't address that issue. So anyway, I thought it was interesting um, and it doesn't go into effect until 2020. So I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on.
1: Well, to start. Right. And they say that California is something like the 10th largest economy in the world. It's actually so large that when California does something, everybody has to pay attention because oh, it's okay. so big that so when California, you know, like in terms of uh, environmental regulations or whatever, it, it's such a large economy that you can't ignore California. So right. I think it is probably going to have a lot of impact.
0: Right. It doesn't
1: seem like such a hardship to require somebody to change their password when they first log on their new device either. It makes.
0: Kind right. Yeah. I mean, it's something we've been t- saying everybody should do anyway, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I think in, in general, this is a good idea. Um, now, so much of the electronics that we buy have something Internet enabled. So as soon as you get home and you plug in these devices, don't wait for it to be legislated. Just as you install it, make sure that you change your password.
0: I would say 80 to 90 percent of all these compromised iot connected type devices is because they have a default password that the owner just never changed so um addressing that would help in the long run but it might take a while to to get all the old ones out of circulation and the new ones put in and stuff like that
1: yeah
0: yeah this
2: is a problem that we've been talking about for years and years and years now the you know the default passwords are one of the biggest issues you know you also mentioned the Automatic updates and that kind of stuff, but anything we can do to try to convince device manufacturers to not have default passwords. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, every month I'm seeing new security bulletins from somebody that they are fixing a vulnerability, and that vulnerability is a default password.
0: Right. And when you look at some of the, these really large IoT-based botnets that get a lot of the press, like Mirai, um, more recently, VPN filter, all due to you know default password right. type situations. Um, although some of them also are exploiting vulnerabilities in some of these devices too. But in the large part, a lot of it is because of a default password.
1: Yeah, so. it's just too easy. Yeah. All of these devices are just so easy for the bots to um, take take over because they know what the default password is and since most of the people don't change their default passwords um, those devices then turn into participants in these botnets
0: evaluate the your devices and make sure that they aren't being deployed with default passwords if they are make sure you change them Hey, Jim, I understand you're looking into a story about uh, people's good password habits or lack thereof. What can you tell me about that one?
2: Yeah, lack thereof is right. Uh, I I saw this blog post. It actually came out a few months ago, and the the headline on the blog post was 59% of people use the same password everywhere. It turns out that the folks at LogMeIn who now own LastPass did a survey, and they published uh, a report about it. And there's a whole lot more info actually in the report than is in the is in the blog post. Yeah, there were some really frightening statistics. Even even stories about password breaches don't seem to change people's um, behavior. You know, 53 percent haven't changed password in the last 12 months even after a breach in the in the news the the really frightening statistic to me was that even if their own account was hacked only 55%
0: would update the password for it to me that's just ludicrous <laughs> you know you know that your password has been stolen and yet you're still like eh whatever and i find that to be really surpri- surprising that people would have that kind of opinion
2: It's an interesting report, and I actually highly recommend that people go out and and look at it. The title of the the report was The Psychology of Passwords, Neglect is Helping Hackers Win.
1: It's interesting that um, people aren't really understanding the need for password managers. You know, there seems to be so easy. They're free. Right. Um, You know, the... Major players all have them besides, obviously, you know, you can use an Apple one on your phone. You can, uh, it's interesting that people haven't really pursued that. Was there any information about the use of those password managers or who uses them?
2: In their survey, I think it was like 15, 16 percent of folks were using password managers, which... The 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 survey probably self-selects a little on the high side. Um, you know, they're not going to survey my parents, for example. You know, so the the number in the general population is probably less than that. But they're they're easy to use these days, and you can generate completely random passwords. Um, I I highly recommend them, especially if you. You know additionally enable two factor authentication to your password manager,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean it's really mind boggling that people haven't picked up on the the benefits of having complex passwords on every single site.
1: We know obviously that these um, there's been so many breaches so you find your username and your password and uh, those bad guys then can use that to use them into your bank or to get into your email account or to to, uh, countless other things if you're always using the same password. 62%
2: 62% of people said they reuse the same password between work
0: and personal email. Oh. That's yeah. <laughs> not good. <laughs> don't, tell you, whoever, uh, don't tell your company that you yeah, work for exactly. that you do it. <laughs> So if your accounts and passwords for things in your personal life get taken um, and somebody can figure out what that might be in a work setting, especially for VPN credentials and whatnot to get into some corporate network, and it has the same sort of password schema, or maybe the same password, that could be a real problem. It could open a company open for risk. All right, interesting story. Um, Thanks for bringing it to our attention, and hopefully maybe some people will have a little bit better password practices in the future because of it.
1: Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's what we hope. All right,
0: thanks, Jim.
2: So Karen, I understand you have uh, Interesting story from Krebs on security.
1: Yeah, actually, it was kind of an interesting story. Um, it started off with uh, Brian Krebs getting an, uh, a phone call that somebody had seen how much he was getting paid out on a, an Amazon cloud account that was wide open you've done lots of stories We're getting about that. paid for
0: like speaking engagements. for speaking engagements right, yes right.
1: i'm sorry for speaking engagements that he was done that that the speaker bureau all of their information of all of their celebrities and what they get paid was out on an open ec3 um account in amazon but what that conversation turned into, which he thought was somebody who was a security researcher who was being friendly to him, it ended up being that this guy actually had a darker side to him and was actually participating in certain dark web activities and extracting money from uh, other companies. He was saying, I know Brian Krebs and uh, I'm helping him on the story and give me some information. Hmm. Or uh, how about if you pay me? Um, and I'll help you because I'm working with him. So he was suggesting that it's a little bit scary that some of these people who are finding these bug bounty or this other information who kinda look like the good guys uh... can easily kinda drift over into the bad guys and so you always have to look through and understand what people's motivations were and and what they're really doing Um with uh because, you know, you're kind of in a dark place when when uh, these people are um, exposing uh, some of these um, security flaws.
0: The other thing I thought was interesting about this is, he, you know, a lot of Brian Krebs's stories I like because they're very narrative, the way they kind of read. Yeah. It's kind of like stories uh, telling. And this security researcher who kind of had this good guy life of, I'm a, being a security researcher, I'm trying to help companies with data breaches and understand when they've been compromised. He also had this, um, you know, darknet personality where he is in these underground forums, participating um, and communicating. You know, working in the underground is not necessarily bad, participating in forums, trying to understand what's going on. But at some point, that security researcher went from more than just participating, he was offering data uh, from data breaches on sale on the internet. So that's where, you know, some lines get crossed. Another thing I thought was interesting when I first started to read the article was the fact that somebody put all this data up on an Amazon EC3 instance and just left it wide open to the internet. And, you know, we've talked a lot in the past about cloud computing, um, everything moving to the cloud. You know, know, even in our organization and whatnot, we try to, you know, do things in cloud-based uh, environments because uh, the speed to delivery of that service is so much quicker. But the problem that I'm seeing, especially in this case, is people. when people do that, there's no checks and balances. In the old days, we had a security team, you were in this protected bubble, you would build your stuff, and if you wanted to poke a hole or do something out with the internet, you had to talk to somebody. Nowadays, you could just throw anything you want out on the internet, and the people who are setting up these virtual environments, and setting things up, they're probably not thinking about the security aspects or making sure that whatever they just set up is secure.
2: Or, or they don't really understand, you know, they they're, they think they're creating some private S3 bucket out there, right. and and they don't really understand, or, or they think, well, if I don't tell anybody where it is, nobody's going to just
1: find it. Right.
0: That always makes me crazy. <laughs> Anybody who thinks that security through obscurity works is completely wrong.
1: Yeah, the default in is to have it closed. So you actually have to do something to make it open. Um, but I guess, you know, you're working with a partner organization. You just assume people also don't use encryption. They could they could encrypt their data. Um, there's lots of, but I, I think John, what you said was right. Is that people are just trying to do things fast. And they're trying to do things quickly, and um, they just aren't realizing yeah. um, the value of the information that they're that you're putting out there. Right. Um, yeah, it was pretty significant.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. All right. Good story. Thanks. All right, Karen. Let's take a look at the internet weather for this week. Um, so I'm not gonna go over like every single port because obviously there are a bunch here that we see all the time. So like Telnet, uh, your fi- Windows file sharing on 445, SSH, You know, we see lots of activity uh, with the Internet of Things devices, especially on Telnet and SSH. A lot of WannaCry and other types of malware on the Microsoft uh, file sharing port there. Um, Remote desktop protocol, also often a target of brute force attack on 3389 TCP. The ones I was going to focus in on here is 5555 TCP, which is the Android debugger service, and then 8545 TCP, which is the um, Ethereum wallet called GETH. Those are probably more interesting. The one that I tend to look at a little bit more, or I like a little bit more to analyze, is the one with most sources probing. Because this indicates that there's a bunch of devices that have been told to all start scanning uh, a specific port for some reason, which usually means that there's some sort of botnet or malware-related activity behind it. So again, we see a lot of ports that we've we've, uh, talked about before in the past. Um, The 8080 TCP, we have talked about recently. Um, Most of this is related to the GPON router vulnerability. Uh, Again, 5555 TCP we'll take a closer look at. 37215 TCP we'll also take a closer look at, this is related to a Huawei vulnerability. Um, That's been kind of going on for about a year now and it's kind of resurged again. So I thought we'd take a a quick look at that. And then the last one I thought was really interesting to me, but I've marked it in green because it's actually not a problem, is 8888 UDP. So I thought we'd take a quick look at Kind of like my discovery process and what I learned, because not everything that always shows up here is bad. And this is a good case of where something looks like it might be bad, but it's not. So I thought we take a close look, okay. uh, or take a closer look at that. You mean
1: security good news?
0: Yeah, it's yeah, it's good news in that <laughs> it's not a problem. Um, but sometimes things that are normal look like scanning, yeah. and uh, um, I hadn't ever seen that before, but somehow it crept up into the top ten there. So the GETH Ethereum wallet, so there's a piece of software called GETH that is a uh, client wallet piece of software for the Ethereum uh, cryptocurrency. And there's kind of a well-known vulnerability for it that if you expose that to the internet and you don't realize you're exposing it, that somebody can get into your wallet and steal your cryptocurrency, your Ethereum cryptocurrency out of it. There's not a lot of sources scanning on it. Um, but it's a significant number. It's like 300,000 at some point, points, 750,000 scans per hour at the peak there. Um, so if you are running the GETH client wall, I recommend that if you haven't already upgrade because it fixes the problem. Oh, and also I did pull up a news article. So around mid-June there was a, um, a large breach related to this where attackers had identified enough wallets that were able to actually steal about $20 million of Ethereum from these insecurely configured clients that we're talking about here. So, uh, just a good reason, uh, evidence that you should really secure your wallet if you haven't already. Um, so, pay attention to that one.
1: Yeah, you would think that people would really pay attention to their...
0: Uh, some people, you yeah. know, people uh, are that do the cryptocurrency stuff, they might not be as, again, like we were talking about on some other things, they might not realize that it's exposing their support uh, to the internet and You know, it just happens. And maybe they're not really good about updating their software. Um, So it happens. (laughs) Here's um, the other one we're gonna take a look at is the port 5555 TCP, which we've talked about before. This is the Android debug bridge. And we started to see a real uptick in this behavior. I wanna say it's like maybe uh, late January of 2018. So beginning of this year. Uh, it went from basically nobody looking for this port uh, up to about five or 6,000 scan sources per hour. Uh, and it was kinda at a pretty kind of regular level there for a very long time. But then at some point, I guess early July it looks yeah. like, it really took off. And um, there were a bunch more botnets that they realized, oh, you know, there's actually, some devices here that are worth grabbing and scooping up into my botnet. So a bunch of other malware families had added that into their repertoire of their uh, spreading capability. And then uh, the next one was port 37215 um, TCP, which this was this has been known about for at least a year now, maybe even a little bit longer. There was a lot more activity last year in 2017, uh, a big flurry of activity with activity uh, scanning around this, and then it kind of trailed off and nobody, everybody lost interest. And you can kind of see there's a steady state volume on the left here of just, there's a small number of devices, I would say maybe, I don't know, maybe a thousand, um, and not even, less than a thousand, maybe 100 to 200, something like that. And then around here, we started to see a lot of increase in this scanning activity uh, within the past uh, two months or something. Um, Satori, which is a variant of Mirai, uh, it's kind of like based on the Mirai code base, is uh, scanning for this quite a bit, actually, lately. So um, one of the things that we have access to is we have honeypots that basically just sit out there on the internet and listen on every port and say, hey, if you wanna talk to me, what do you got to say? So um, in one of our honeypots, this is a recent one, I think from today, actually, even I grabbed it, where you can see how they're trying to exploit this uh, Huawei device. And um, in the SOAP body here, you'll see that there's a new status URL um, uh, XML tag here, and then they injected some code. And what is actually happening here is probably the device has a vulnerability where it's not sanitizing input properly, and it tries to you know, apply this new status URL, but instead it's executing this code which what it does is it runs busybox wget, and it goes and fetches this file called slash Juno um, from this IP address, saves it to the machine, changes it so it's executable, and then he runs it with a parameter of Huawei. And um, uh, I grabbed this, because I was kind of curious, what is this piece of malware? So I went and fetched it from here. And this is the MD5 checksum. When I run it against VirusTotal, who did know about it, they, um, they flag it all as Mirai. It's kind of hard to see on the screen here, but all of these basically say Mirai, Mirai, Mirai. So I thought that was interesting, uh, yeah. how that actually gets, how it um, gets exploited yeah. Yeah, on those types of devices. And then the last one that's not a problem, but when I saw 8888 UDP, I was like, well, that's really weird. First of all, we don't normally see UDP. It's rare that you see it in the top scan sources. Um, But seeing 8888 UDP just kind of like felt weird to me. So I have two pictures here, one's of like the last 180 days. And you can see that there is definitely an uptick in activity here um, as opposed to what it had been, which was pretty consistent uh, prior to that time. Uh, but one of the things to me that when I looked at this right away, I was like, oh, this doesn't look like a botnet to me. If you look at a lot of our other botnet activity that we had looked at recently, it kind of stays steady. You don't see these spiky, comby-like things. It almost looks like a comb, right? Yeah. Where it's got these tines in it. You don't normally see that with botnet-related activity. And when you zoom in, you can see that at 11 o'clock every day, it has this very pronounced right. uh, Spike. Uh, When I looked at the scan volumetric reports, so we collect scan volumetric reports on each of these ports when they um, get analyzed, I could see that what the start and end of the ranges that they were scanning all ended up being IPs that were associated with a company called Private Internet Access, which is a VPN service. And doing some digging, I got some of these packets, I looked at what they are, it's a single packet that has just one byte in it, where um, they send an A, basically, and they get a response of an A. And uh, here you can also see that I looked up this IP address. I could see it's the uh, Montreal, Canada, Private Internet Access was the IP that it was trying to communicate to. So long story short, what's actually happening, and I confirmed this by other people on the internet had also been talking about this, is that this is a ping feature as part of the Private Internet Access Service. So it's legit, it's part of their service. But I guess it's interesting that the reason it showed up is they must be doing well. So they must have a lot more devices, people using private internet access, and they have a really wide breadth of nodes across the world for people to use for VPN. So I thought that was interesting, and just something to say, you know, not everything's bad. And then once you actually dig into the details, you can kind of learn that, oh, this isn't actually, this is a normal thing. Uh, that's going on and something that can be kind of dismissed.
1: Sometimes it's good to find things that are at least neutral <laughs> since we're used to finding so many bad things.
0: The views expressed on at and track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of at and or any other person or entity.